Hello, and welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. I'm Rupert Watson, your host, and today I'm joined by Niall O'Sullivan and Nick White. And we're going to be talking about inflation, whether it's likely to rise or not, over what time horizon, and what portfolio investors should do about it. Niall, perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about your role at Mercer. I'm the Chief Investment Officer for um, EMEA and Asia. Uh, so my role is to try and empower and enable the teams that really do three things. One is finding and blending the best managers into portfolios. The second is building the best possible asset allocation for clients. And then enabling external investment teams to extend their reach and build better portfolios using the various tools available from Mercer. Perfect. Now, inflation has become once again a talking point for markets, really for the first time in quite a long time, uh, with some arguing that the huge policy support that's been thrown at the global economy will inevitably lead to higher inflation at some point, while others argue that inflation will remain soft as it has for the last few decades. How do you see things? So I suppose, Ruby, we were here about a year ago and we were talking about inflation. And at the time, the spectre was all about deflation. And I think what we were saying at the time is if inflation is classically, you know, too much money chasing, chasing too few goods, we were almost hoping for inflation at the time. I think I may have said somewhere that inflation would have been a triumph it could be achieved. And the reason was because it suggested that demand was returning and that as a result, you were running into slight bottlenecks in supply and, and meeting that demand. And ironically, that's exactly what has happened. So now, even though, as exactly as you say, inflation is like the spectre haunting the market, it is a sense that what has happened over the last while has to some extent worked. But what's going to happen from here is probably the, the, the key questions. And I, I think there's a few things to remember. We have, at similar points when we've come out of depressions or come out of slowdowns, had over-prediction of inflation before. And so I think, you know, when you look at it, and people are projecting forward, it always happens at this stage that people maybe over-predict. So there's an element of being cautious about exactly what's going to happen next. Secondly, an element of bounce back was almost inevitable if the economy recovered, because things had contracted so quickly, the returning back and that supply chain pressures that I talked about earlier on was likely to lead to some form of inflation. And I think at the back end, you know, the, the secular factors that are there in the background that have been controlling inflation for a while, be it the, you know, the, the fact that, that labor is not as powerful as it once was, um, be it the overall drivers from technology and globalization, I don't think that they have particularly gone away. So I think we would be in a position where we're certainly watching, and it's a specter that is clearly worrying people, um, but I don't see it necessarily massively getting out of control at the moment. So you, say, you said earlier that inflation is often overpredicted. Are you saying, therefore, that inflation over the next little while is likely to be as it has been over the last several years, i.e. long way below target in places like Japan and much of Europe and just a little bit below target in the US? So I think a key point here is the timeframes that we're looking at and the type of inflation that we're talking about. As I said in the introduction, there is an element of a coil spring here. Once the economic measures started working, there is going to be a bounce back inflation. So I think we know almost for certain that over the next while we are going to see higher inflation prints coming through and potentially even quite higher inflation prints versus normal levels. You saw that recently, even in Germany, where just a change on the VAT side led to inflation spiking by you know, over 1% in just one print. 
And those sorts of things are going to happen as things start to work out. But I think as we move through 2021 to 2022, things are going to stabilize and we're going to get back to the kind of the ongoing level of inflation that we would expect as long as the authorities can keep things going the way that they want them to go. And then on an onwards basis, I think inflation may be a little bit higher than we would have expected before, but not necessarily high moving into those danger levels and that we have talked about. I certainly agree with that. I mean, one of the things I suppose I'm thinking about, uh, and I have a slightly sort of shorter term time horizon in my dynamic in my dynamic uh, activities, is what happens this summer. Because as you, you know, as you know, we're all going to head out whenever we're allowed, particularly in Europe. Uh, Nick's going to tell us what's going on in Australia, where things are a bit different. But certainly in the Europe and the US, we're all going to head out this summer uh, when we're allowed to. And we're going to see, I think, sort of biggish jumps in things like airfares, things like hotels, and possibly things like pub prices. I haven't been to a bar for ages, um, and I can't wait to go. And whereas normally I'm quite frugal and I don't like overpaying, I suspect this summer um, I won't care. So I think there's definitely, I think I'm perhaps I'm a little bit more worried about an inflation spike this summer than you are, but I would agree completely that that might well be temporary. And then after the sort of, you know, this one-off boost to inflation works its way through the system, then we go back a steadier uh, inflation environment. Why are we worried about inflation? There's probably, well, there's multiple, but at least two that are very relevant. One is going to be that somehow it leads to interest rates rising. So if inflation was to get out of control, maybe the Fed and others change their mind on exactly what they said, and interest rates rise back to levels that by historical standards are more normal. That is obviously a problem for valuations of assets unless it is met by you know big earnings growth at exactly the same time so that stock prices can stay where they are. So it's the type of inflation that matters and what it leads to. That at least would be growth-led and arguably could be okay and could be digested in the stuff that will go through it. The one that I suppose would be the real specter of the feast would be if to some extent we were to lose control of it and we were to get back to some sort of stagflationary type um, environment where things were to get out of control. And I think for me, the first one of those inflation fears, I think you could have a temporary spike. I think we could look at that. The second is much more worrying. But I don't see that the secular factors that have held things in check up until now are likely to be knocked out of kilter over the next while. Thank you. And then, uh, Nick, perhaps I can bring you in. And before before I'll ask you a question, Nick, can you just briefly um, let everybody know uh, who you are uh, and what you do? I'm Global Strategic Research Director, uh, responsible for house views in areas relating to multi-asset class research and portfolio construction um, and our global annual strategic research agenda. Uh, is one of my responsibilities too. Um, so in the context of inflation that we're talking about today, what we look to do is to inform clients about inflation, about the risks of inflation, uh, the kind of assets that would be beneficiaries of inflation, and indeed position portfolios around that. And I think it's interesting listening to the conversation there because it's very focused on what's, what we expect to happen. And of course, what we need to do from a strategic point of view is manage not just what our base case view is, but also what the range of outcomes is. And, and it's firmly our view at the moment with the environment being such that it is, you've got all these conflicting forces, a lot of which Niles already mentioned, um, it is the range of inflationary outcomes that you need to be managing in your portfolio is quite wide. I think we'd agree with Niles' comment that markets, governments, central banks, you know, they're really, really worried about deflation because it's much, much harder to control. 
that skews the inflation risks essentially to the upside, especially when you've got those central banks saying we're happy to let it run for a bit, you know, just how far, just how long. Um, and then in that, in that case, obviously, you need portfolios to be protected against those kind of outcomes. And increasingly what we're doing, we're talking to clients about having an inflation sleeve in their portfolios that specifically targets those the kind of assets that we expect to perform well in that regard. What sort of things would those be in, in, in that yeah, inflation so sleeve? You've got a range of assets there. So you've got some sort of traditional assets like uh, inflation-linked bonds and, and real assets. And by that, we mean real estate, infrastructure, and not everything in that space will work. Really, it's the very core assets where you've got um, strong connection between inflation and rents in real estate, uh, strong connection between um, inflation and income within the infrastructure space. You know, there's not, these are not growth assets, not value-add, not development assets. These are core standard assets that will give you some decent inflation linking. But then, of course, you've got things like commodities. And then relating that back, there are areas of the equity market that will do well in this kind of environment. But it's very important with all of those, they all protect against slightly different inflation scenarios. Um, so is it expectations of inflation, which we've already seen, and that's where you see um, break-evens and so on bounce. That's good for uh, some assets. But the long-term inflation, that is is one of the more, um, so the higher and surprise long-term inflation, that's where you need some really, really strong uh, long-term hedges in there. Things like commodities, they tend to be early sort of recovery-based uh, type inflation protectors. And we've already seen a lot of movement in commodities. Now what we need to be thinking about is sort of the next waves of inflation that, that could come through. And I think, Nick, there's something else I'd add, which I think is makes it difficult for the role you do, which is also the correlation or the way assets move with each other. So we have been in what has been a golden age for classic 60-40 type investing, 60 in various types of equities, 40 in various types of bonds, government bonds in particular. And the reason has been you've had two very positive trends, the lowering, the falling of interest rates and the upward move in the equity markets. But at the same time, the major driver of markets in many ways was growth. And so a growth fear is a good day for bonds, bad day for equities and vice versa. So you had two trends that were positives, but they tended to offset each other each day, giving you a lovely positive upward move and very, very smooth. If inflation tends to spike up, then the narrative changes from growth being a driver of what happens day to day to inflation being a driver of what happens day to day. And inflation hits bonds and equities the same way. It, in, rising is bad once it gets beyond 3 or 4%, falling is good. So what you would have is the potential for not nearly the same positive trend, particularly in the government bond markets, allied with the fact that you won't get the offset that you had along the way. So you know, getting those different types of assets you talked about into a portfolio is very, very important depending on where the scenarios work out over the next while. I think it's interesting that there aren't really many people who are fund managers or investors who remember inflation. Um, it's been a long, long time. Of course, we've had, you know, odd, you know, inflation go up a bit, particularly when, when we had the commodity, commodities were surging uh, just before the great financial crisis. But it's been really a long, long time before inflation has been at, at meaningful levels anywhere. And so it will be interesting to see, um, you know, what happens to markets if inflation uh, does surprise on the upside for a period of time. Um, I mean, I certainly agree with it. I think what we're all saying is that base case, 
is that inflation doesn't stray too far from target. Um, but as Nick was saying, I think upside risks have risen. And so, you know, we do need to be careful about all, all eventualities. I think the Nick, other thing I'd probably just throw in there, Rupert, is when we talk inflation, we're obviously very much talking about the kind of classic CPI, whatever measures that we use of, of, of goods and services. Inflation can mean different things to different people. I mean, there's been a lot of obviously things going on in terms of increases in the amounts of um, money being created by central bank and where it goes. And a little bit like when you put a, ho- a you know a hose into a lawn and turn it on, you're never quite sure exactly where it's going to bubble well, up. It generally but, goes into your face, so that's what well, I find. You know, if, you, if you stick it in deep, it'll pop up somewhere else in the garden. Okay. But when you're never sure exactly where, and the point about that is, I think there are other things that are inflating. There are pockets of things that are popping up because of all the things that we talked about that the authorities are trying to do. So I think it is right to say we're probably talking probably about goods and services and the classic measures inflation, but there might be other things that are inflating at the same time. On the topic of things that are inflating, um, can I perhaps, Nick, bring you in on Bitcoin and gold? So you've got real gold and digital gold and your thoughts on both and in the context of their role, uh, if, if any, in a portfolio. It's the inflation scenario that you're trying to manage, and there are different inflation scenarios to think about. And a lot of the short-term conversation is really about recovery-driven inflation, you know, which is a bit of, if anything, a bit of a bounce of inflation. Why are we talking so much about inflation now over the long term, the medium to long term? And it's really related to this, uh, the, the stimulus that's coming in, the coordination of monetary and fiscal stimulus. Now, that can spook markets about the risks of, of monetary debasement, you know, of, of confidence in fiat currencies such as US dollar, etc. Um, and then what you see is you see a lot of support for assets such as gold. And what's interesting about Bitcoin is people have called it digital gold. Now, of course, gold has a long-term history. It's got some relationships that we understand. Um, we're looking at it very hard to be to consider putting it into our, our own reference portfolios because it is strong diversifier. Bitcoin is very different. You can call it digital gold, and you could argue that there's a similar relationship, which is people are going, going into Bitcoin because you know, they see it as an alternative store of value over the long term um, and you know, a different way that actually money may be traded long term. But to put it in the same camp from an investment point of view, I think is wrong, because really what you're talking about, gold is tried and tested. It's got inflation characteristics. It's got a bit of downside risk characteristics. Bitcoin certainly doesn't have downside um, protection characteristics to it at all. We call it more sort of a transformational asset, which is why you've had a lot of growth. You've also had an awful lot of volatility. We'll, we continue to expect a lot of volatility. And in the world of cryptocurrency, which is fast developing, other currencies you know, could come through and, and own the future. It's just that Bitcoin is very much the dominant force at the moment. Uh, so we, we would put them in quite different camps when it comes to in, invest, but we understand why people talk about them in the same context. I must confess, I'm I'm deeply skeptical of Bitcoin, but uh, um, but we will we will see. The other one that's caught my eye, and uh, Niall and I have been chatting about it over recent days, is non fungible tokens. Niall, would you like to share a few thoughts on that, and <laughs> briefly, perhaps? You always wonder when you do something like this into the stratosphere exactly who you're going to set off where in terms of various things. But I suppose at its simplest, if Bitcoin can be digital money, then it's not necessarily mad that something that is digital can be art as well. Um, Plenty of people listening to this call will have children that play various um, video games or adults that play various video games. 
and they buy masks, skins, whatever they're called to wear that only have a usage inside the game for which they pay. That is digital art, just at a very different level. Yeah, but they don't, level. They don't spend they don't spend $70 million on that. They don't spend $70 million, no. But if you were to take something like Patrick Mahomes, um, the NFL player was talking about this last week, he has gone out and done his own digital artwork that's out there that are almost like trading cards that you could take out. You know, a Mickey Mantle um, baseball card sold for about $5 million earlier this year. That can also be created by printing it on a sheet of paper. It's just valuable because of the stamp that is on it. So conspicuous consumption never really tends to be understood by the people who are outside of the conspicuous consumption circle. The key point I would make, though, and I, this is where I think I agree strongly with Nick, as an institutional investor, I think when you invest, you're typically looking somehow to a link to sources of revenue, GDP growth, and the things that come with it. Is there an element of speculation in the investment based on the valuation you come in at, future moves? Of course there is. But you can always link it back most of the time to something that has that fundamental driver. And that's the fundamental thing we put in our portfolios. These other things that we're talking about are interesting, may want to hold, may keep their value for a while. But they are purely, I think, speculation and probably not something that you'd expect to have in an institutional portfolio. Okay, thank you for that. And I'm just sort of turning to a slightly uh, different topic or of a theme uh, is Australia. So Nick is uh, Niall is in Dublin. I'm in the, on, in the south of England. Uh, Nick is with us from Australia. Uh, it's evening for us, morning for him. And uh, a lot of our focus here is on the reopening of the economy uh, in Europe, in the US, as the vaccine works its magic. But of course, your experience in Australia is somewhat different. Um, I've seen Australian colleagues and New Zealand colleagues in offices, which is unheard of in uh, in my part of the world. Um, could you just briefly take us through what's going on in Australia uh, and other major economies, uh, at least loosely in your part of the world? Yeah, sure. So the pandemic, I think, was a very different experience in Australia and indeed in China. From China's point of view, obviously, they were into the pandemic early, dealt with it early, came out of it early. Um, Australia's experience of the pandemic was in, into it relatively early, but got on top of it very, very aggressively. Um, and maybe there's a benefit of geographical isolation. You know, it meant that it was easy to control borders and so on. Um, they're very aggressive about keeping it under control, which meant that we could reduce COVID numbers quite aggressively. So to put in that in context, so Sydney's in New South Wales, state of New South Wales, uh, we just had our first few cases in really two months. Um, and that's because every time the numbers have blipped up to anything even significant, we just go straight into lockdown and put it back down. Now, that means that uh, the growth trajectory, you'd expect it to be relatively strong, but there's still, still output gaps. There's still uh, very, very low wage growth. What's really been firing is the commodity side. So the exporters have been uh, looking very strong. We've seen iron ore prices up 50% in six months or whatever it is. And of course, that feeds through to um, to China, which I'll just come on in just a moment. The last thing to mention about Australia is we're seeing house prices run very hard. And if what you want is a bit of a wealth effect to get people spending again, you know, that's in train. Is that a good thing or not, really? You know, there's a danger that people are taking on more debt because of where mortgage levels are, where rates are, and the RBA is obviously playing with the curve to keep those keep those down. A lot of it's floating rate in Australia. So they're working hard on that short end of curve. But yeah, so where that goes to, you know, we're seeing that big wealth effect come through. So you'd expect inflation to pick up at some point. China, of course, so the commodity prices is actually acting a little bit the other way. You're starting to see some of those costs come through into uh, the way, uh, into factory production. 
um, there's actually been quite a bifurcation between what's going on with CPI and the PPI. So CPI being consumption and PPI being producers, producers indexes are, uh, are running a little bit harder. And there, because they're seeing a lot of impact from the stimulus coming through, their exporters are doing really well. And it's actually allowing them to take a little bit more of a contractionary stance in China to, to keep a grip. So if anything, it's quite a, it's really quite a different experience in, in China again from the rest of the world. Across broader Asia, it's, um, it's really, really very, very diverse. So you've got areas like China and Taiwan pretty much running at capacity, and then with, with, but still with quite low inflation that could pick up, whereas areas such as the you know, Philippines and more of the ASEAN markets are running higher, uh, higher inflation and with, still with, with big output gaps. So it's really quite an impactful, it's quite a diverse story really across the region because it's, it's inflation anywhere will impact on an investor's portfolio. It's, you know, there's a lot of money invested by Asian investors in the developed markets. The other thing I think you mentioned commodities, which is obviously just, there's an interesting thing to think about, I think a little bit as well, about whether the inflation proofing assets of the past are going to be the inflation proofing assets of the future. Um, So commodities, property, other things like it, even stuff like infrastructure. We're talking about the relationships that have worked before, but there's new zeitgeists that are meeting that. Yep. People are working from home more. Also, though, the whole transition pathways that people are trying to get to in terms of responsible investing. So I think one of the things that we're obviously spending a lot of time thinking about is, say, something like infrastructure, a really interesting asset if you were to get an uptick in, in inflation. But at the same time, a lot of the old infrastructure tends to be quite carbon intensive. So can you find a way to combine what you're looking for as an investment return but also give capital to the movement that's going to go on to green the economy globally. And I think there will be some interesting opportunities to, to link both the return you want and the future zeitgeist um, over the next while. I couldn't agree more. And I'll be doing a, a podcast on clean energy and all of that at some point later in the year. Um, I think it's a fascinating topic. I think great for the global economy. We're going to see a huge surge of investment and that will ultimately obviously you know, do great things for the environment, but also I think uh, be great for the economy by lowering real energy prices over the next several decades and generating decent returns and importantly, really inflation linked returns. Um, so I think it's a very interesting area. Niall, could you just briefly take us through changes in, in the portfolios that, that, that you oversee um, uh, from a strategic level uh, in light of the perhaps the slightly changing risks around inflation? Yeah, and, and to some extent, we had been slightly worried about this before um, the developments uh, of the last year. And, you know, we should obviously say, first and foremost, it's a it's a public health tragedy and, and all the things that have happened over the last while are you know, just, just very, very sad. So we talk about markets and we have to, but you have to recognize the, the, the human tragedy of it as well. But we were probably beginning to get a little bit nervous just about the sheer volumes of money printing and the stuff that had gone with it, the low interest rates back then. So Nick touched on it earlier on, the types of asset that he talked about, be it um, on the property side, the, the real estate side, and maybe trying to find contractual inflation-linked cash flows that can be held to term, um, linking it to infrastructure as being the kind of stuff that you'd want in a portfolio um, to protect against kind of more gen- more bigger inflation moves. And then, as, as Nick said, as in a kind of a more moderate contained inflation where costs can be passed on by companies, equities tend to do quite well. And we were building that into our portfolio construction as well. And at an overall level, when you had a growth portfolio that's trying to receive, generate an outperformance target, 
we weren't using a lot of nominal government bonds in those portfolios uh, anymore for the reasons laid out. So those things are still happening. We're still looking at them. But I suspect, Rupert, you're probably a better place than I am to talk about where things are happening in the more short term uh, in those portfolios, the dynamic moves, as it were. Yes, I think that uh, over the next 12 months or so, the outlook for equities and other risk assets is pretty positive. We're expecting this big pickup in economic activity this summer or Northern Hemisphere summer as the as the vaccine uh, gets rolled out. Uh, that should lead to very strong corporate profit growth this year, uh, which should spill into next year as well. And I think that policy, particularly the Fed, will remain loose at least for the next several months uh, and probably into, into next year. So that's a pretty positive outlook for, for equities. There are two things that worry us. Uh, the first is valuations with some stocks in the US, particularly tech stocks, uh, looking uh, looking pretty expensive. Um, and there are also signs of bubbles. Um, so I'm, I'm old enough. Um, I mean, I'm 49, so I'm not old. I'm, I'm, I'm under 50. Um, so I'm still I still feel young. But I'm old enough to remember the late 90s when there was, you know, I would be receiving emails every day from people saying, buy this, buy that. Uh, it's a tech stock, it's going to go through the roof. And there's definitely a little bit of that going on with Bitcoin, as we discussed, and these non-fungible tokens and GameStop, uh, and obviously a lot of well-known tech companies as well. Um, so there are definite signs of froth, and that uh, is a reason, for, I think, for a little bit of caution. Um, we're also worried about, you know, on the valuation side, the valuation of equities uh, uh, relative to bonds. So at the moment, relative to bonds, equities, US, even US equities aren't expensive, uh, and indeed non-US equities are quite cheap relative to bonds. But if bond yields were to go higher, then I think that that would call in, that would be a major risk for global, particularly US equity markets. Now, Niall was earlier talking about a little bit of extra inflation is good news, and I agree with that. Uh, and if that's all we see, a little bit of extra inflation, bond yields in the US perhaps going up to 2.5% over the next couple of years, I don't think that's a worry for, for equity markets. But if we saw something slightly more substantial, pushing bond yields, should we say, above 3%, uh, then I think that that would be a challenge uh, for equities. So I think that's where I'm going to bring this to a close. I'd like to begin by thanking Niall and Nick, and also thank you, the listener. We hope you enjoyed this month's podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave a review. If you'd like to discuss today's topic further, please email us at mercerinvestmentsolutions at mercer.com. We'll be back next month where I'll be joined by Ye Ying Dong, our market strategist based in Sydney, and we'll be delving into the outlook for the Chinese economy and markets over the next few years and beyond. Thank you. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal, tax, or any other advice, and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular, personal, and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Please refer to Mercer's full legal disclaimer in the episode description.